We are right at the halfway point in our series on 2 Samuel. And this morning, we're going to turn to another part of the Bible which belongs at this point in 2 Samuel. In recent weeks, we've seen David fall into a mess of sin. He lusted after a lady called Bathsheba. Then he gave in to his lust, which led to adultery, then murder. And that was just the start of the mess. But we saw last week, God was gracious to David. He sent the prophet Nathan to confront him and rebuke him. And in response to that, David repented of his sin. He owned up to it, and he sought God's forgiveness. All of that was set out for us in 2 Samuel. The writer of the book told us what happened. But this morning we have the chance to take a closer look at David's repentance. We're going to hear about it in his own words. And as we do, we'll see a way forward for ourselves when it comes to turning from our own sin. So let's open our Bibles to Psalm 51. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 573, and in the large print, 888. Psalm 51. And we'll read the whole psalm starting with the tiny letters at the top. For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. 
You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is God's word. And if we were looking at this in a Hebrew Bible, those first few lines at the top of Psalm 51 wouldn't be set off in small print the way they are in our Bibles. They actually appear as verses 1 and 2 of this psalm. In Hebrew, Psalm 51 has 21 verses instead of 19. And what that tells us is that the opening lines here are important. They give us a definite context for this prayer. It came at the lowest point in David's life. It was prompted by David's greatest failure. Now I realize none of us are likely to fail in exactly the same way David did. Even if we were to manage adultery and murder, we have no opportunity to abuse royal power the way he did. But in one way or another, David's prayer is relevant to each of us. The New Testament says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Those words were written to Christians. So whether you're a senior Christian, or a baby Christian, or not a Christian at all, sin is an issue for each one of us. And so we need to know what it means to repent of our sin. That's why this psalm is in the Bible. It's not just here so we can learn about David. It's here so we can benefit from it ourselves. And David's repentance has three clear elements to it. It involves looking in, looking up, and looking out. First of all, true repentance involves looking in. Our natural tendency is to defend ourselves and explain ourselves and excuse ourselves. So, for example, people don't admit anymore to lying. They say, I misspoke. It's not that I deceived you. The words just came out wrong. Or we say, I behave this way because of my parents or my teachers, or the government, or the weather. They messed me up. I can't help the things I do in the way I am. We can do that to one another, and we can do it with God too. C.S. Lewis said, what we call asking God's forgiveness very often consists in asking God to accept our excuses. Lord, I know I did that or said that, but surely you can see why I did it. I didn't really have a choice. But true repentance starts when we stop all that, when we stop the excuses and take an honest look at our sin. 
That is the stage David has got to. Look at his very first words in this psalm. Have mercy on me. When we ask for mercy, we are admitting that we deserve judgment. Mercy is when we don't get what we deserve. So long as we are making excuses, we don't really believe we need mercy. We're still arguing it's not our fault. But David has gone beyond the point of excuses. He's taking an honest look at his heart, and what he sees there is impurity. Look how he prays in verses 1 and 2. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. David is not feeling good about himself. He sees ugliness. He sees a heart that's unclean. He knows that trying to ignore sin or excuse it away isn't going to help him. David knows sin needs to be cleansed. And David can't do it himself. One of my friends at school was caught swearing by his dad. And the punishment was he had to eat soap. I don't know if people do that around here. Maybe it's just a Northern Irish thing. But he had to eat soap as if that was going to clean up his mouth. Now I guess the idea was to make him so sick he wouldn't do it again. But that was coming at the problem the wrong way. When it comes to sin, we can't get at, get at the parts of us that need cleaning. Only God can make us pure on the inside. True repentance realizes that. And as David looks inwards, he also realizes sin is against God. Look at verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. We should really stop and say, is this true? That David only sinned against God? If we think back over the chapters in Second Samuel, surely it's hard to think of anyone David didn't sin against in the whole Bathsheba thing. So is he trying to go easy on himself? No, David realizes the person most sinned against is God. So as bad and as real as all of those other offenses were, the very worst offense was against God. God who made him and chose him and blessed him and promised him a future. And aside from all the ways that sin spits on God's provision like that, sin is also an affront to God's perfect holiness. However much you and I might try to downplay sin, the Bible says it is evil in the sight of God. And we are never going to get the seriousness of sin unless we grasp this. We can see it also in another famous incident from the Old Testament. One that nearly but didn't end in adultery. The book of Genesis tells us about the life of Joseph. 
At one point, he was working as a manager down in Egypt. His boss was a man called Potiphar, an Egyptian. And after a while, Potiphar's wife took a fancy to Joseph. One day, she said, come to bed with me. And Joseph's response was, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And we might ask, well, what about Potiphar? Wouldn't it be a sin against him? Of course it would. But Joseph realized in time what David only realizes later. Whoever else we might wrong by our sin, sin is always first and foremost against God. And so when we sin, our biggest problem is God. Whatever else needs to be put right, and however urgent those things might be, it's nothing compared to the urgency of putting things right with God. But we can miss this though, can't we? I realize myself there have been plenty of times I have asked forgiveness from other people, but I haven't asked forgiveness for God, from God for that same thing. I've acted like it had nothing to do with God. But if it was a sin against someone else, if it needed their forgiveness, then the offense against God was even worse. I needed his forgiveness even more. True repentance realizes who has been wronged most by our sin. And look at the conclusion David comes to in the middle of verse 4. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. True repentance sees the situation through God's eyes. He is right to hate our sin. He's right to see it as evil. He would be right in condemning us to hell for our sin. We don't deserve forgiveness. Forgiveness is going to require his mercy. David goes one step further as he looks in on his sin. He sees that sin is deep in us. Verse 5, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. Womb could also be translated as inner parts or hidden places. And I think that's more likely here. In other words, David is saying God desires a faithful heart. He's not saying God desires babies to be faithful in the womb. And this is a problem for us, God's desire for a faithful heart. Because in verse 5, David says, I was sinful not just from birth, but from conception. So my sin with Bathsheba wasn't a one-off. It might have seemed that way as we read through First and Second Samuel. David's outward behavior seemed very impressive to us. The thing with Bathsheba when it came did seem out of character for David. But David knows better. 
He knows sin has been an issue in his life right from the very start. Last Saturday night, Adam Whitehouse reminded us you don't have to teach little children to disobey. They want to go their own way right from the very start. Tell them not to touch the coals on the fire and they'll head straight for the coals on the fire. David can see that. He knows his recent sinful behavior was only a symptom of a sinful heart. And that's where this connects with you and me. If we've been listening to David's sin and feeling smug because we've never got up to the kind of stuff he got up to, well, now we can't be smug anymore. You and I might not be showing such severe symptoms of sin in our behavior, but God desires faithfulness in our hearts, not only in our behavior. Jesus spelled that out when he said, if you're feeling cocky about your sexual record because you've never committed adultery, then realize looking at a woman lustfully is adultery. And Jesus said, if you're proud because you've never murdered anyone, realize that despising someone is enough to land you in hell. You can find those words in Matthew chapter 5. Sin is deep in us. True repentance agrees with that. It doesn't stop at examining our outward actions. It goes on to examine the heart behind the actions. David has taken a good look inwards. And it doesn't look good. He's not encouraged by what he sees. It's ugly. That's not a pleasant experience to go through. But it's part of true repentance. Now I'm not suggesting there's some mechanical process we have to follow exactly when we're repenting. We don't get on our knees and say, okay, what was step one again? What do I have to say to God first? Then what comes after that? No. But the point is, true repentance begins when our excuses stop. And if we're going to stop excusing our sin, we have to examine our hearts. We have to see them the way God sees them. That's the point here. We stop defending ourselves We admit the truth. Our sin is ugly. It goes deeper in us than we ever realized. And it deserves God's condemnation. We have to get there. But we mustn't stay there. Some people never get as far as seeing the horror of their sin. Other people never get beyond the horror of their sin. They never look up from it. But the way forward is to look up. That's what David does. The turning point seems to come at the end of verse 6. 
It's more likely that should be translated as a future tense. You will teach me wisdom in that secret place. David has seen the truth about himself. His sin is worse than he realized. But he has hope. God's power is greater than David's sin. God's mercy is greater than David's failure. At some point, staying focused on our sin crosses over into unbelief. We have to look up to the only one who can help us, and he truly can help us. David knows he's impure, but he also knows God can make us clean. Verse 7, Cleanse me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. This thing about cleansing with hyssop was part of the Old Testament ritual for cleansing people who had skin diseases. The priest dipped a hyssop plant in blood and then he used it to sprinkle blood over the unclean person. Then they were declared to be clean. Now there's no suggestion here that David has some kind of skin disease. But he knows he's got a diseased heart. It's contaminated with sin. And he knows he needs a similar kind of cleansing. And just like the man or woman with the skin disease, David can't make himself clean. Only God can do it. And David knows God can do it perfectly. He can make us totally clean, whiter than snow. Some of us ask God for forgiveness and then we go around like he only half managed it. Like we're still pretty grubby in his eyes. We act like we're still offensive to him, so we better not be too light-hearted. But isn't that a lack of trust in God's ability when we do that? We've seen very clearly we mustn't take our sin lightly. But at some point, we have to trust God's power to cleanse us and wash us from our sin. He is not a half-hearted God. He does the job properly. In Jesus' story of the prodigal son, when the son came home, the father didn't give him a hair shirt to wear. He didn't send him to his room for a few days. No, Jesus says he threw a party with music and dancing. And here, David has the same hope. In verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. He's talking about a burden being lifted. There's no evidence God has been literally crushing David's bones, but the weight of his sin has felt crushing. David will celebrate when that weight is lifted finally. It was good for David to feel the weight. It sobered him up to his sin. But it would be unbelief to hang on to that burden. 
Maybe you've done something in the past and you recognize the ugliness of it. You ask God to forgive you. But you're still living as if he hasn't. You're still trying to carry the guilt around. Long after God has dealt with it and forgotten about it. He's washed it away and blotted it out. He's moved on. And you have to move on too. Trust him enough to leave it behind you, whatever it was. And then celebrate his cleansing power. David is confident God can cleanse even him after all he's done. He's confident God even can change him and take him forward. David doesn't believe he's doomed to stay in a rut, endlessly repeating the same sin and then repenting of the same sin. David believes God can make us new. Verse 10, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Notice the words David uses, create, renew, restore. David lost a lot when he dived into sin. We saw he just wasn't the same person afterwards. His heart was hard. He was able even to order the death of one of his most loyal soldiers. And he was able to carry on as king like nothing had happened. He became a selfish hypocrite. And David lost his fellowship with God. But now he's asking for that to be restored. And we noticed last week, we cannot expect God to undo all the consequences of our sin. He hasn't promised to do that. He is not going to clean up all the mess our sin makes on this level. In our relationships and our circumstances. But what about the mess sin makes in our hearts? The mess it makes vertically between us and God. Can we dare to hope God would fix that? Can we know what it is to be close to God again? Can we have soft hearts again? Hearts that care about others? The Bible says yes. God is the creator and he's the re-creator. No matter how grubby our hearts have become, God can make them pure again. He can turn us from selfish schemers into men and women who look beyond ourselves and see the needs of others. He can renew a steadfast spirit in us. In other words, he can give us the ability to resist the sin we gave into before. We are not doomed to keep falling into the same sin over and over and over again. 
We can experience the joy of salvation again. We can have a willing spirit that delights to do God's will. God can do this. When we are stained and when we're bent out of shape by our sin, he can recreate us. He can renew the love and joy and fellowship we once had with him. We do not have to stay out in the cold with God. One of the devil's greatest lies is that there's no way back from sin. And it's a very powerful lie because it's so close to the truth. When you and I look at our sin, when we truly see the ugliness of it and the offense it is against God and how deep its roots are in us, a true sense of all that will bring us pretty close to despair. And it should. Because humanly speaking, there is no way back. We can't put ourselves right. It's a good thing to see that truth about our sin. But the devil wants to keep us there. He wants to stop us looking up. He wants us to underestimate what our God can do. Creation and recreation are miracles. But God does miracles. He can make us new and he can take us forward. He can even use us to point others to his recreating power. Look at verse 13. David says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. When David looked up and prayed this prayer, he could have had no idea how God would answer it. He could have had no idea that 3,000 years later, God would be using this prayer to show sinners like us the way back. Not only can God restore the joy of our salvation, he can make us useful servants again. Now that does not mean we will be useful in exactly the same way we used to be. Sometimes our sin will close off certain areas of usefulness to us. But our sin does not make us dead in the water as far as serving God goes. When God renews the joy of our salvation, we will find ways to point others to his mercy and to his cleansing, recreating power. For a start, we can all sing his praises. Verse 14, Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. When you and I look honestly at our sin, it shames us into silence. And that's good. That saves us from hypocrisy. It stops us from carrying on like nothing has happened. But then we have to take the next step and look up. 
And then we will find reason to sing again. As David looks up, he understands that God works with broken hearts. Verse 16. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. In verse 16, the sacrifices David has in mind are animal sacrifices. The animal sacrifices God asked for. They're explained in detail earlier in the Old Testament. It was God who gave all those details. So why does David say God doesn't delight in those sacrifices? Well, it's simply because God is interested in the heart behind the sacrifices. It was very possible to bring your bull or your lamb to the altar and go through the ritual while remaining proud and hard-hearted totally unrepentant in spite of the bull or the lamb. And in that case, offering the animal was a pointless exercise. David understands that. He knows God is looking for a heart that's broken over its sin. Those are the people God will work with. Men and women who come to him with no excuses and no arguments. They simply pray, God have mercy on me, a sinner. So when you sin, God isn't looking for some great repayment from you. He's not expecting you to go on a pilgrimage somewhere. He's not expecting you to turn off the central heating for six months so you can really suffer for a bit. No, God is looking for a heart that knows and hates and sorrows over its sin. That's the only qualification you need. It's all you need for God to work with you. Well, having looked in and up, finally David looks out. Verse 18. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Zion is another name for Jerusalem. And I think here David is asking that Israel not suffer because of his sin. Second Samuel tells us God made David king for the sake of Israel. But in the whole mess with Bathsheba, David forgot that. He acted only for himself. And now as the horror of his sin has dawned on him, and as he has brought it to God, David can't help but think of Israel. That in itself is a sign he is being renewed by God. He knows his sin could bring disaster on Israel and he pleads with God to protect the nation. Now Jerusalem's walls haven't fallen down at this point. 
Asking God to build up the walls is a way of saying, make Jerusalem secure. Don't let it crumble because of my sin. Build your kingdom, God, despite my own unfaithfulness. This is where true repentance eventually leads us. It has to start with an honest look at ourselves. But it isn't going to leave us turned in on ourselves. When we look up and when we experience God's forgiveness, then we can hardly help looking out and praying for those who may have been hurt by our sin or put in jeopardy because of our sin or led astray because of our sin. Sin is self-centeredness. And so repentance leads us to other-centeredness. It leads us to consider the needs of others, not just our own desires. And notice the psalm ends back with these animal sacrifices. In the life of Israel, they were part of worship. When they came from men and women who were truly repentant, then they were a delight to God because they came as the overflow of people's hearts. They weren't an attempt in that case to buy God off or keep God quiet. The sacrifices were true worship from broken hearts made new by his grace. Today, obviously, those animal sacrifices have been and gone. They've served their purpose. Their purpose was to prepare the way for the true Lamb of God. And so Christ's sacrifice on the cross meant an end to animals on the altar. So what are forgiven people bring to God today? How do we show the overflow of our thankful hearts? Well, the New Testament gives us the answer. In his letter to the Romans, Paul writes, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. God's cleansing and renewing does not happen so we can go back to our sin again. God cleanses and renews us so we can get up and live for his glory. So we can use our body not for sin, but for obedience and service. We said earlier, this psalm is not giving us some kind of mechanical checklist we can tick off so we'll do repentance right. This is a glimpse of true repentance in one man's life. But it's also a prayer we can take and make our own. When we are confronted with sin in our lives, it doesn't have to be adultery or murder. The more we become aware of God's holiness, the more we'll be aware of sins we never even noticed before. Things that seemed irrelevant before will suddenly come to see 
what an offense they are to God. The more we grow as Christians, the more we will find ourselves turning to this prayer. So let's mark it in our Bibles. And let's remember, as we look up from our sin, we are looking up to Jesus on the cross. That's our assurance. There is hope for repentant sinners. That's the reason forgiveness is possible. This psalm is for us. And so we're going to use part of it as we respond to what we've heard. We're going to sing some words from this psalm. And then we'll remember the grace of God that lifts us up from our sin and answers this prayer. So let's sing, Create in me a clean heart, O God.